Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. Do African states have any idea how to slow down global warming and make policy uh, that can cushion communities against the impact of climate change? That is the question. Chris Trisos, director of the Climate Risk Lab uh, based at the African Climate and Development Initiative at UCT, joins us this evening. Chris, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Chris, do African states have any idea what to do about slowing down global warming and uh, creating tools, mechanisms, and technologies in policy that can, Im- that can cushion, mitigate against the impact of global warming and climate change? Yeah, I think African states have a lot of ideas and have had a lot of ideas and efforts and policies for a long time. And one of the things that constrains a lot of this in the African context is insufficient resources for implementation. And last week was the first Africa Climate Summit, which was held in Nairobi. Many African heads of state attended. It was it was um, the official host was uh, Ruto, the leader of Kenya. And one of the significant things they called for was a global carbon tax. They said global north countries, developed countries really advocate the power of markets. And one of the things we know in markets is if you want less of something, in many ways you can tax that. And so they're saying there should be a, a carbon a carbon tax or a tax imposed on, on fossil fuels to help us rapidly reduce the burning of fossil fuels, the greenhouse gas emissions that come from that and that cause climate change because climate change is already having widespread negative impacts on African people and economies. So yeah. lots of ideas, uh, but it requires strong collective action globally to implement many of them. Have we seen any of these ideas aggressively implemented anywhere else in the world where we can see the positive impact from it? I'm not sure about aggressively implemented, but there are a number of countries that have carbon taxes or taxes on on fossil fuels of various types. Um, In many cases, those are not yet high enough to lead to long-term, deep and sustained reductions in the use of fossil fuels. But South Africa, to some extent, has a carbon tax, right? Things are set very low. So some estimates from research suggest that carbon taxes might need to be as high as $200 a ton to reflect the true negative consequences of the climate change impacts that come from fossil fuel burning. But many places in the world have them like way more than 10 times less than $200 a ton. And so there's there's a lot of political will that is lacking or where there's political will, there's not necessarily political follow through as governments change from one administration to the next. The United States being a a classic example of this as things shift from Republican to Democrat and aspects of climate change action differ massively between those two groups. In South Africa, we've seen, I think, more consistency, but still we're a country that has remained very attached to our fossil fuel industries, particularly coal power for electricity. And I think one thing important to note At the beginning of a conversation like this is, while Africa as a continent has contributed a very small percentage, typically around 5% or less, to the global greenhouse gases causing climate change, South Africa is, is an anomaly on the continent. 
by some measures, we are around number 12 or 13 globally as a, as a bad greenhouse gas polluter. And one of the major reasons is because of so much coal for our electricity. Yeah. Uh, is there room for developing nations, and by developing nations that is inclusive of the entirety of Africa, to impose uh, or to take serious the, the implementation of carbon taxes, especially on corporations, when the continent so desperately is a developing continent with ambitions to industrialize? I think there is. And I think in the, in the declaration from the heads of state that were at the Africa Climate Summit last week, we, we see that there is ambition and intent um, with African heads of state calling for a global carbon tax. And I think the important thing there is global. Many African countries don't want to necessarily be the only movers on this because they feel it might negatively affect their economic competitiveness. And in a, in a context where many European countries, North American countries, um, China, India are, are very heavy polluters compared to many African countries, to ensure that it's done in an equitable way uh, would require a global agreement on carbon tax so that industry is not sort of shifting from one place to another to avoid carbon taxes in one jurisdiction uh, while they're being imposed in another one. Certain blocks like the European Union have discussed what they call a carbon border tax adjustment mechanism. So they're a large market. Um, they're very important for a lot of export goods. And so they're, they're saying things like, well, if we're not going to have a global carbon tax, what we might do in the EU is impose a carbon levy at the border on goods that come from very fossil fuel intensive production in other countries. So that by having a carbon tax in Europe, we can keep European industries competitive if we penalize goods coming from high fossil fuel intensity countries at the border of the European Union. In an African context, that's, that's something the African Union could do if all African countries agreed, but it, it requires and something this declaration calls for is, is more economic integration in something like a free trade union within Africa so that there might be a more coherent application of things like a carbon tax across the African continent. Yeah. Um, are the global frameworks that are in existence sufficient, such as the Paris Treaty, um, the Paris Climate Treaty, for instance, or any other agreement that may exist uh, in, 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 in a multilateral framework? So I think the best way to answer that is to say action is insufficient and negotiations have been progressing at a much slower pace than the, the problem requires. And so the, the Paris Agreement has this very important target in it or limit, really, and it says that countries will pursue uh, keeping global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and the best efforts for 1.5. We're already at 1.15, and we're seeing terrible impacts attributable to climate change. Uh, things like the drought that happened in Cape Town from 2015 to 2017, was th the reduced rainfall behind that was three times more likely to have occurred because of the greenhouse gases from fossil fuel burning. Um, heavy precipitation events, such as some heavy precipitation we've seen in tropical storms in parts of uh, the United States, the southern United States, and um, drought events in parts of other parts of Southwest Africa and East Africa, climate change attributable. So we're seeing the fingerprint of climate change 
on negative impacts and and the pledge is there what is lacking is a lot of follow through and so governments are making pledges there's an ambition gap their pledges are still not strong enough to get us well below 2 degrees celsius and then there's an implementation gap even the pledges they're making they're not following through on the actions and so what we're left with a position is we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions yeah. around 40% by the end of this decade to keep that 1.5 target in sight and currently we are we are well off track I want us to speak about the hurdles and controversy around decarbonization. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Give me a call. You can be a part of this conversation. 086-000-2032. Give me a call. Send me a WhatsApp voice note on 0614-104-107. I'm in conversation with Chris Trisos. The African Climate Summit just took place out in Kenya, Nairobi, hosted by President Ruto. African member states collectively... Uh, Debated matters, debated policy ideas, debated mechanisms, all in an attempt uh, to come up with a framework, a declaration of sorts uh, to deal with the continent's climate crisis. But it's not an isolated climate crisis. It's one interconnected and an inextricable one from the rest of the world. Um, and what the rest of the world does obviously has an impact on the continent. And what the continent does has an impact on the continent. Decarbonization has been met in some parts of the continent with great controversy. Chris, one such controversy is in South Africa, whether or not coal power plants, for instance, should be decommissioned. A lot of people has polit have politicized, naturally so, the matter so much that if ESCOM were to de uh, decommission certain coal power plants um, for the use of renewable energy, for instance, or for the introduction and replacement of renewable energy, um, it, 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 it won't be met smooth sailingly so because the feed the at least the backlash would be that it causes uh, economic disadvantages we've spoken about that a little bit in the in the previous uh, um, half hour the question i have now is whether or not we have found a politics through which we can speak about climate change in connection to decarbonization in ways that makes that makes for a productive conversation I think we have. People talk about a just transition, uh, particularly in, in the South African context, a just energy transition. And that is transitioning away from fossil fuels into renewable energy in a way that uh, provides safeguards and an equitable approach for people who are vulnerable to climate change, as well as people whose livelihoods are vulnerable from the transition away from fossil fuels. So I think, I think we found that language. And that discussion and, and discourse is happening a lot in South Africa. I think it is also important to, to mention that climate change is a severe threat to the livelihoods and economies yeah. of Southern Africa and South yeah. Africa. And so we absolutely have to phase out coal um, if we hope to have a successful future here. And with other countries doing things like considering carbon border adjustment taxes, if we stick with coal and the rest of the world moves away as well, in South Africa, we're really left in a difficult position because we'd be extremely uncompetitive. And we're facing a lot of load shedding with a fossil fuel heavy electricity generation sector, while we have cheaper and more reliable renewables that can be built rapidly available. The technology is here today. We don't have to wait for someone to invent it. We can deploy it yeah. if we choose to adopt the right policies. 
the 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 follow up uh, and this would have been discussed at the summit at great length would be what sort of investment financially and otherwise is required uh for any sort of uh, you know climate initiatives on the continent um, to yield sort the results that it desire for instance south africa has been the uh, has been a beneficiary of an 8 billion rand 8 billion dollar fund uh, made available by the USA and various other countries. Um, but not all countries across the continent have had such facilities made available to them. What sort of investment is required? And is there a roadmap uh, to that investment being made? Um, and if so, where's the money going to come from? Yeah, I think this is a very important conversation and, and a lot of the contentious topics in climate negotiations come ultimately to the money and the finance. And that's what's held them up for a long for a long time. Um, so it, in the South African context, there have been these pledges of $8 billion for just energy transitions. A lot of that is in the form of loans or loan guarantees, not sort of just grants to South Africa. Um, I think it's important to think about two types of climate finance here, and they're both critically important for Africa, but they're a bit different. The first one is finance for decarbonization. And for that, trillions of dollars are needed over the next decades uh, to meet global decarbonization goals and trillions of dollars even in Africa to meet both decarbonization goals and have reliable electricity across the continent for the many of people who don't have electricity access today. Um, a lot of that can come from government investment and government loan guarantees, but also from the private sector. There's a lot of money to be made for the private sector and electricity generation. And with renewables being some of the cheapest electricity in human history, especially solar, there's a strong market there and a lot of reasons that with the right regulations, private sector investment can help Africa decarbonize. We also need technology transfer. So sharing of intellectual property and technologies from developed countries to developing countries in a way that allows more equitable use of that technology. The second key finance thing, which we often forget, and a criticism of the Nairobi Declaration and the Africa Climate Summit is it didn't focus enough on this, and that is adaptation. So that's how do we adapt to the climate risks that are already happening today and that will happen in our future. And so that's things like more efficient uh, irrigation, perhaps for crops suffering from heat waves or cooling mechanisms for people in cities under heat waves or in Africa, especially upgrading of infrastructure in informal settlements to be more risk resilient for climate change. And that, again, is, is many billions to trillions of dollars. And that doesn't always have such a big return, a cash flow return for the private sector because it's a, a broadly distributed public good often for very vulnerable people, such as those living in informal settlements, and their governments have to play a much bigger role. And I think there's a historical obligation for some of the heaviest polluters, such as developed country governments, to really play their part in contributing finance yeah. to that adaptation yeah. action. And, and and some of those, financial, uh, those financing instruments may come through controversial Bretton Woods institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, World Trade Organization, through which financing instruments are typically made available for developmental purposes. Um, is Are those institutions through the United Nations aligned with the global priorities? Is the United Nations a fit for forum as was the climate, the African Climate uh, Summit through the AU, a fit forum, to have these sorts of conversations in an equitable way? 
Um, I think the UN has a, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and negotiations happen under that every year. Um, I wouldn't say they're always equitable, but I think zeroing in your, your question is is very good one on the multilateral uh, development banks and finance institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. I think many people think they are increasingly aligned with climate goals, but not fully fit for purpose for the scale of the challenge ahead of us. I think we have to realize two things. One, those institutions could do a lot more and African heads of state are correct in, in castigating those institutions and calling for them to be a lot more proactive and release a lot more finance, especially concessional finance like grants or low interest loans to African countries so that they don't have to take on debt to tackle the climate crisis. That's the toxic situation we find. Many countries are in heavy debt, especially after COVID, and they're being asked to take on more debt to decarbonize, which is actually a global public good. The IMF, the World Bank, they should be helping those countries out more, and, and many leaders are, are calling for that, and hopefully in the next few years we'll see stronger calls for those institutions to be more progressive. But I think also it's about financial regulation. Um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's leading scientific body on the topic, says with extremely high confidence that there's more than enough money around to tackle this problem, and there's more than enough liquidity to, to do it. What's lacking is a lot of financial direction and regulations from governments. For example, imposing a carbon tax could raise huge amounts of revenue for climate action. So could forcing things like pension funds and insurers to disclose climate risk and so invest in a greener way. And as as so far, we, we haven't yeah. seen the follow through politically to do that. And, and that needs to happen to tackle the climate crisis this decade. Yeah. Chris, we're going to have to leave you there. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I really, really do appreciate it. Chris Trisos, a director of the Climate Risk Lab based at the African Climate and Development Initiative at the University of Cape Town. I'm taking your reactions to that. Give me a call. The number to dial is 86 086-000-2032. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. I want you to answer when you react. I want you to think of this. Place yourself in a context where extreme drought has taken place on the on, on parts of the country or extreme floods have taken place. And ask yourself if you think enough is being done at a country level with regards to climate change. And if uh, the litmus test for it is to say that we have to aggressively decarbonize, that is to say decommission uh, coal power plants, how do you weigh up the politics thereof? It is a trade-off that must be made. But how would you make that trade-off? I'm uh, looking forward to some of your actions. Give me a call, 086-000-2032. Send me your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 Tweet me at Oliver underscore speaking. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of this, we speak IFP. What does its future behold? We'll be speaking to Saikile uh, Hadeb. Night Talk with Oliver Dixon.